Manufacturing electronics is not a simple task, and because of its complexity, it's also quite expensive. Companies like Apple are able to pull their costs down through economies of scale. Since Apple is always placing huge bulk orders on chips and sensors and other hardware components, the company can get lower prices for those components than an individual hardware hacker can get if that hacker wants to build a prototype. Herein lies the opportunity for Tempo Automation, a company that allows rapid prototyping of electronics. By aggregating demand for different electronics prototyping projects, Tempo Automation can offer competitive pricing and speed to anyone who needs a hardware prototype. I visited Tempo Automation and was given a tour of the production floor by CEO Jeff McAlvey. He showed me the huge machines that are used to build hardware prototypes and explained how they work in serial to produce prototypes. He also mentioned that anyone can schedule a tour of Tempo Automation's factory by going to the Tempo Automation website, which is in the show notes, tempoautomation.com. It's a pretty sweet factory, and I highly recommend checking out the tour. After the tour, Jeff and I sat down for an interview about what Tempo Automation is building and their plans for the future. Jeff is a really smart guy and interesting to talk to, so I hope you enjoy this episode. Jeff McAlvey is the CEO of Tempo Automation. Jeff, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me, Jeff. We are sitting in a conference room adjacent to a assembly line that is uh, right next door, and uh, you gave me a brief tour of it right before we started. It's essentially an electronics manufacturing assembly line for prototyping and small volume manufacturing. And today we're going to talk about the hardware production world and where we are. If I'm an engineer, I'm really looking forward to a world where I can just create a piece of hardware as easily as I can create a piece of software. Maybe I've got a computer-aided design, and I want to be able to just email that to somebody and have them produce a prototype for me. So if I'm a maker today, and I have an idea for a hardware product, how do I take that design and make it a reality, and how far are we from that like push button, just take a design and turn it into a hardware product. Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. I think one of the uh, one of the challenges that a lot of folks uh, face today is just how difficult uh, that can oftentimes be. And so, uh, I, I think a couple of things that tend to to bite folks along the way is uh, when they have design ready, it's not always uh, fully manifest all the manufacturing implications of the design decisions they made. Uh, there's just a lot of nuance and things that uh, can bite you. It's like, oh, that part's going to be hard to source or the way that the, the geometry of board is, the yield's going to be terrible. And so um, I think there's sort of definitely an education element that I think is uh, one of the things that is definitely a gap uh, between uh, where we are and that vision. I think there's a second degree to which uh, a lot of the factories out there really built around high volume production, uh, making a million iPhones, uh, things along those lines. And uh, an implication of that is they, they very much do not enjoy uh, doing low volume of, uh, of circuit boards uh, insofar as you have to sort of force um, force uh, these low-volume orders through a process that's really not built for them. And so they, they're inclined to really activate their bureaucracies and uh, efforts that are appropriate and, and uh, sort of a, a, a well-oiled machine for, uh, for the high-volume process, but uh, really struggle and fall down uh, for these low-volume type of uh, propositions. As far as I can tell, the premise of tempo automation is if you can aggregate those small prototype orders, those uh, 
low volume manufacturing um, requests, you yourself can get economies of scale that will be potentially up to the volume of those large manufacturers. And so you will enjoy the same economies of scale of those large manufacturers in the grandest vision of tempo automation. Yeah, no, without a doubt, the economies of scale story is a big uh, big part of making the, the low volume orders possible. I'd say as, if not uh, more important, uh, is uh, to do with taking a very software-centric uh, approach to the process. Uh, and so uh, what we mean by that and uh, to contrast against is um, – uh, the electronic manufacturing industry is one that is very much characterized by um, a lot of labor and uh, manual steps associated with the process. So anything from um, reviewing customer designs and figuring out like, oh, uh, that's going to cost this much and take so long. Here are some problems that might arise. Anything from uh, ordering the raw materials and the components uh, to actually uh, sort of walking the floor with a, with a clipboard to make sure everything's going properly. Um, it's, it's really labor all the way down. And I think uh, that's surprising to a lot of folks. A lot of folks have sort of this vision of like, oh, there's this uh, robotic factory that's sort of uh, pumping out uh, sort of iPhones and all these type of things. And that's absolutely not the case in terms of how a lot of this, uh, a lot of this stuff gets done. And so um, our view is that uh, software has a lot of uh, attractive qualities uh, when trying to automate a manufacturing process. Um, uh, being able to sort of get smarter with every order and, and on a scope and a scale that becomes very tr tricky for folks to do. I think the ability for software to go and uh, automate and uh, make sure that uh, many of the tasks that would be very tedious per person and potentially error prone uh, can just go through seamlessly and instantaneously. There's a degree to which uh, a lot of queues build up uh, in the current process insofar as uh, folks are waiting for um, somebody to review the design or things like that. Whereas if it's just software all the way down, uh, the queues we're talking about are, are milliseconds instead of hours and days. Um, and so for all those reasons, we're very bullish about uh, uh, this notion of taking a, a software-centric approach to uh, automating uh, the electronics manufacturing process. Now, I am very curious about this. This is not directly related to the manufacturing of electronics question, but uh, there is obviously this raging debate in America right now. Can we get manufacturing jobs back in America? You're portraying the manufacturing process as automated in a sense, but very much a human-in-the-loop process. We need lots of humans in the loop today. The Amazon warehousing, the fulfillment center process, I think of as analogous. You also need tons of humans in the loop for that process. Do we need as many humans in the loop for these types of processes as we did for old-world manufacturing, like building a Model T? Or is there enough demand for humans in the loop in these types of procedures? Or... Um, Maybe are we at a point where we there is as much demand, but perhaps the the populace, specifically the American populace, is not uh, trained to do this type of work? Or what's what's your perspective on that? Yeah, so I think that uh, uh, the Amazon example can be uh, instructive. So I think um, maybe in walking through uh, what, what they've done recently with the Kiva acquisition. So uh, I think uh, you don't have to rewind uh, very far back to hear about some pretty rough stories about a uh, wife in an Amazon uh, warehouse of uh, just sort of walking uh, sort of 10, 15 miles each day and just sort of being uh, just completely exhausted uh, by the end of it. And I think there's there's cer certainly a degree to which there's some activities for which humans are really well suited and some for which they're not. Um, and so it's interesting to see um, with Amazon pick up Kiva, uh, a robotics company uh, involved with um, 
really automating the walking uh, part of uh, of uh, distribution. So the the principle of it is really around uh, instead of having people walk to the shelves, the shelves quote walk uh, to the people, and so folks can be stationary and be taking things off the shelves and then putting them them in the boxes to ship out the door. And so I see that as a, a great example of uh, of a process where here's something that is really not a good uh, human activity, um, and uh, having robots take care of it so folks can can handle the things that are, are much trickier to do and um, involve a little bit more sort of challenge and decision making. Um, and so, uh, so I think uh, when you look at the, the calculus in terms of the impact on, on jobs, uh, I think that uh, there's uh, sort of pressure along a couple of dimensions. So I think uh, it's absolutely the case that uh, in virtue of uh, walking being a sort of material part of time, that sort of for a given steady state amount of orders, there's less, uh, less folks required for the process. But uh, when you look at the flip side of it, um, by being able to do the process more more efficiently, uh, it, it becomes possible. There's downward pressure on pricing, and so more people will be willing to go and buy uh, from Amazon. And uh, just even uh, just with increased demand, even, even if there's a degree of automation, they're going to need more folks in order to go and fulfill it. I think another thing uh, to really appreciate is the extent to which uh, the uh, as much as we we think about the the robots uh, sort of designing and maintaining themselves, that's very much not the case either. And so there's a lot of really smart engineers uh, working at Kiva, for example, uh, to to really go. And uh, make sure those robots, I guess, keeping now Amazon uh, to really make sure those robots are humming along. And uh, there's a lot of sort of maintenance and upkeep associated with uh, making sure that they're uh, they're well functioning. And so I think um, I, myself is being very sympathetic to the view of um, automation in general as one where by making these uh, the the cost associated with fulfilling uh, these goods lower, it opens them to a wider audience and, and there's sort of more jobs uh, for folks uh, to sort of do the day day to day activity. But further, um, it's a it's a great boon uh, when it comes to um, really the engineering and maintenance uh, and running uh, of the robots themselves. And many of these maintenance jobs, I get the sense, are very domain specific. They don't necessarily require engineering training. It's like if you're somebody that is a picker in a warehouse. And you spend two years as an Amazon picker, and then your job gets automated. By virtue of spending so much time in that warehouse and seeing how things operate, you probably have picked up how to do some other task that is not yet automated. To me, it seems like this sort of thing where the the you will always have a need for technical expertise of how a warehouse works, and the operations will just keep going up market relative to what a robot can do. This is what I think is so strange about the automation argument. Yep, yep, yep. And, and I think we've uh, very much experienced a, a similar pattern firsthand. Uh, I think uh, as we've uh, added additional robots to our manufacturing line, it's definitely the case that folks who used to be doing some very tedious uh, uh, manufacturing and assembly tasks themselves, the robots are handling that. But folks, uh, and, uh, we have actually more folks now than we did before, and their attention is really uh, really around uh, how do I handle this really odd part or how it's uh, it's sort of more sort of specialized and, and more decision-making task. And so analogously, in our quoting process, it used to be that uh, uh, all of our quoting was uh, was manual, uh, just as we were getting started. Um, but as it's been exciting to see uh, more and more quotes uh, be uh, pushed through our software, uh, the remaining ones are pretty tricky oftentimes. And uh, and so uh, we have uh, folks who are very good and very thoughtful about how to handle those type of ones. Hmm. So we've gotten off to a very deviant start. Uh, you're talking about quoting for PCB production, which are printed circuit boards which is what Tempo Automation does. 
explain what a printed circuit board is because the audience is entirely software engineers. We have no idea how these machines work. Most, most, most of the list, or at least if you're anybody like me, I don't know how the things in this. I had to look up what a PCB was. For a, I was looking at the wrong Wikipedia article for PCB for about five minutes. There's some chemical that is named PCB, and I was reading through this. I was like, I don't understand anything about oh, chemistry, but I was totally wrong. But explain what a printed circuit board is. Yeah, certainly. Um, and, and so I think to to zoom out a little little further. Anytime that software is going to be touching anything in the physical world, um, electronics have to be the intermediary. So if you look at um, uh, look at your car, uh, for example, uh, a lot of the sort of assistants and uh, sort of smarts uh, associated with your car, um, there's uh, software that's running uh, on uh, on these circuit boards uh, in the car that go and sort of have influence in terms of the, the braking systems and things along those lines. Um, you could look at um, your smartphone. If you crack open the case, uh, uh, you'll you'll find a printed circuit board inside that's involved with um, sort of making sure you get a good uh, good signal with the with the cell tower, um, making sure that uh, the GPS is uh, is telling you where you are, um, running the display. So really, any time that you're in a situation where you have um, software uh, touching anything in the physical world, uh, there's a printed circuit board PCB uh, that's the an intermediary. And I think one of one of the things that's been very exciting over the last couple of years has been the extent to which they become more and more ubiquitous. Uh, so, I mean, I think uh, people thought talk, some talk about like Internet of Things, wearables, drones, virtual reality, autonomous cars, satellites. Uh, the list goes on and on and on. And uh, and I, I personally am very excited about uh, all these new domains where uh, electronics uh, are entering and uh, being really um, a vessel uh, through which a lot of software uh, can be more involved in our lives. were showing me the assembly line for these PCBs and it consists of four or five giant machines that look very expensive. It's basically you put in a raw print circuit board, you've got one machine that puts on the uh what is the glue type of It's called machine? solder paste. Solder paste. Puts on solder paste. The next machine uh puts attaches transit transistors using a some kind of vacuum to the solder paste. Is that right? So uh, transistors are one example of the components that are put down. Okay. Um, the, there's uh, actually millions of different components uh, oh. in virtue of which the printed circuit boards can have their different functionality. So you can imagine uh, like your phone. Uh, so one of the chips is involved with uh, GPS, another one involved with uh, sort of accelerometer. And so each of these different functions uh, oftentimes have a different chip uh, associated with them. And then there are a lot of uh, support components or think of like resistors, capacitors, diodes, and things like that in order to make sure that uh, some of those larger components uh, behave how they ought. Um, and so uh, all, all that together uh, is what in virtue of which uh, the uh, printed circuit boards can have their diverse uh, functionality. It's really through the diversity of those components. So step one, you have this big machine that is applying uh, 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 solder paste to these boards. And step two is you're attaching various components like a bluetooth thingy a bunch of transistors you're just you're this is the step where it's actually composing what goes on the circuit board and then beyond that it is essentially testing and uh a, you know, QA process. Is that right? Yeah, you got it. And and um, I think it might be also worth, uh, if you rewind back uh, in terms of uh, how the board comes about. Um, so uh, we, in virtue of really being hyper-focused on speed and trying to help uh, electrical engineers build their hardware faster, uh, are, are really about uh, all our 
uh, much of our supply chain is in the South Bay. So uh, these are folks making, um, it's a chemical etching process. Uh, think of it almost like a, a lithographic one where, um, so in comes the design file that specifies the different layers of the printed circuit board. Uh, and there's, um, there's a resist uh, that's, uh, that's on the boards and then uh, a light exposure that goes and, um, and removes uh, elements of the resist so that when you dump it in the, ba- in the chemical bath, uh, the, the parts that where the resists were removed are etched away. And so it's in virtue of that, which you have the different features um, of um, that results in a place where you can put different components. Uh, it results in the traces that connect uh, the components to the board. Uh, so that's that's a, one of the inputs uh, to our process is that bare printed circuit board. Uh, the, those those components, the transistors, the Bluetooth, um, the, the things like that that you mentioned, um, those are made at uh, semiconductor fabs, and those are, are, are around the world, uh, many of which uh, are in Asia. Um, but uh, we we will typically work with um, local distributors of those, and so uh, there are a number of places uh, for which uh, you can imagine ordering by uh, 6 p.m. and you get them 8:30 the next morning, um, in virtue of their having a lot of uh, diverse components in stock. And so that uh, some of that supply chain is definitely an enabler uh, for us to be able to offer the speeds that we can uh, for our customers. My understanding is supply chain has has gotten so cheap because of the smartphone production and because there's so much smart so many smartphones made and there's a surplus of all these little thingies that go into a smartphone and this is what has led to much of the proliferation of drones and all this kind of stuff because the same modules that go into a smartphone go into a Tesla certainly a huge enabling factor without a doubt uh, i mean i think you can imagine um uh, buying an accelerometer a couple of decades ago, and it'd be good luck. I think the the main ones that would be made were were involved with uh, missile guidance, and uh, you can imagine a lot of the sort of defense uh, components are not going to be free. Whereas to have like millions and millions and millions of uh, smartphones uh, out there, uh, all of a sudden it's like for just uh, sort of sense to like a few dollars, you're able to have some pretty remarkable uh, functionality out of components. And by the way, um, the, uh, given the, the market pressures and the competition within the smart- smartphone market, there's a high degree to which uh, there's a, a tremendous amount of velocity in terms of the improvement of the different components these days. You see these images coming out of Shenzhen where you just see this blighted landscape from the massive amounts of manufacturing that they're doing. I've heard from other people that you can do that manufacturing in a clean fashion. It's just more expensive. Do you have any perspective? Oh, and then there's also like uh, Bezos talks about once he gets Blue Origin online, he wants to send all the dirty production to space and then they just shoot you down uh accelerometers you know uh, oh if here's your finished accelerometer right, right, and right. then you know turn earth into a nature preserve what is the environmental cost what is the mandatory environmental cost like do we have to be paying a, an environmental cost or are we choosing to pay it right now yeah so it's a good question and so i think uh, a couple comments to, to say on the topic so i think one is to do with uh one one of the reasons that i'm really excited about doing what we're doing uh of really focusing on uh, sort of low volume and helping people very quickly iterate through their designs um is that uh, i'm a firm believer in the the, the view that the more iterations that folks can do on the front end and the more experiments they can run, uh, the more likelihood they're going to make something that not only works, but some, that, that something that people want. Uh, and so, I mean, I think there's sort of principles around uh, lean manufacturing. Agile software is the same um, uh, same principle of uh, the more that you're able to sort of iterate and try things at, and uh, in sort of small batches and do things along those lines, the less risk you run of, um, in, a, in a hardware case, making a, a ton of, I mean, I think of the, the how many uh, Samsung uh, Galaxy Note 
note uh, phones had to go to the landfill um, because they didn't do enough uh, sort of development and testing and prototyping. And, and one of the reasons why I don't think they did that was that it's just extremely expensive and cumbersome in, in order to sort of do these type of iterations associated with the project and the, the, these products. And so I'm very bullish on the view that uh, the more that folks are able to sort of very quickly iterate and try out these things, uh, they'll be able to avoid a lot of the waste associated with making products that either don't work or, or that people don't want. Um, so that, that's sort of a general comment about uh, uh, my optimism uh, on the topic. I think when you think about the specific uh, environmental impact of um, the steps of electronics manufacturing process, um, one of the categories uh, for which is um, the chemical etching uh, uh, and the etchants uh, associated with making the, the bare printed circuit boards. And uh, so one of the things that uh, we hear actually a lot of uh, discussion about uh, from our partners is uh, really the very extensive controls that they have in place to make sure that that's not really uh, sort of cycling back into places where it ought not to be. Um, and, uh, and they have very, very imp uh, impressive elements and treatment uh, to, to make sure that they're really not uh, having a, a big negative impact uh, on, on the environment, mm -hmm. uh, and if, if, uh, if a negative impact at all. Uh, I think another another uh, development sort of on this front uh, that's happened over the last uh, uh, decade or so uh, is, is to do with um, uh, is actually European uh, legislation called uh, ROHS, um, and it's uh, it's an initiative to really eliminate lead uh, from uh, electronics, and uh, and so that's been an area that uh, has been uh, I think generally a positive in terms of not. Uh, uh, not having uh, more lead in uh, in the environment than uh, than 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 would otherwise be uh, happening. So let's talk about the customers who want these small volumes and these prototypes. The first thing that comes to mind is somebody with a Kickstarter. Can you give me uh, a picture for who the typical customer is and describe the process that they go through to get? something that goes through tempo automation sure um so i think of uh, there's being sort of three archetypes uh, of customers for us uh, and we have uh, folks like you mentioned so doing kickstarters hardware startups uh, things along those lines uh we have a genre of folks who do um product development consultancies so it might be there's a company that's great at industrial design but uh, doesn't have as much experience with electronics they would engage those folks to go and help them design the circuit boards for their products it's similar to software development consultancies that exist um and then a, a third genre uh, is to do with the R&D groups at, uh, at large companies uh, developing new products. And when we think about, uh, so that, that's sort of three uh, genres of folks. Uh, when you think about uh, the industries that folks work in, uh, we, we do a lot of business with uh, aerospace, automotive, uh, robotics, uh, Internet of Things. Uh, but there's also a, a notable long tail of, uh, of just a huge range of different uh, products that we work on folks with as well. Uh, it seems like the second part of your question was around what the what the end of the end workflow is uh, yeah. for somebody designing um, and prototyping uh, one of these products. And so, I think if you really sort of start uh, at the start, it, it really begins with the specification. And so, at the company, there's a conversation with uh, their customers to go and figure out like, hey. Boy, we want to make um, so just to say a thermostat as an example. Uh, it's like oh, it needs to measure temperature in this range. Maybe you need Wi-Fi and Bluetooth uh, things along those lines. Um, then, and uh, so you have sort of a list of specifications in terms of what it needs to needs to do. Um, the next step, step of the process is around component selection to be able to say like hey. Uh, I want to use this Wi-Fi uh, module or um, this particular microcontroller or uh, this or that uh, in order to go and achieve the functionality uh, that, that's desired. Um, then uh, sort of at that point, you're really sort of starting to enter the computer-aided design CAD 
uh, world. And so in electronics design, there's there's two main uh, phases of that. And the first they, they call schematic. Um, and so what that is about is about, um, it's more sort of a conceptual uh, re representation of the board. And so it's, hey, I'm going to have these components. I'm going to have these connections uh, between the different components. But it's really abstract from the, the physical uh, implementation of, uh, of those connections. So it's components and connections and components is um, what you're uh, specifying in the schematic uh, step of the process. Uh, after that is uh, what they call layout. And that's that's the physical physical instantiation of uh, of that schematic to say like, hey, I want this resistor at X fifty Y seventy five, and I, I want uh, a connection between that to go um, from X uh, X uh, from X fifty to to X one hundred, um, and then uh, then also and then go go through these layers of the board, then connect to this component on the other side uh, that's here, and so it's very much. Uh, uh, you have a board that's like five inches by four inches, and uh, components located here, here, and here, and with with traces uh, here, here, and here, and so it's very much the more to do with the physical uh, realization of uh, of the design that's specified. Um, so that, that's really where our process uh, begins, uh, and so. Uh, customer uh, drags and drops uh, the design file uh, the design files uh, that they have uh, into our into our software and uh, and the first uh, mode of activity is uh, uh, getting some coaching back around how to design in a way that's going to set up the manufacturing process for success so I think one of the examples of that is around uh, design for sourcing so I think uh, it's uh, really sad to see a situation where folks uh, sort of spend all this time designing then all of a sudden they can't uh, there's no way to find the component and uh, and things get delayed and it just becomes very tricky and, and so we have software that integrates with uh, with our distributors to go and say like, hey, this is going to be available. This is going to be hard to find. Uh, things along those lines, and then we can make uh, very transparent to our customers uh, the implications of those design decisions on the ability for them to source uh, those various different components. So, um, so in so there's a sort of a round of uh, the design for manufacturing feedback uh, that our customers get. Uh, followed up with uh, in the software uh, a quote that says, here's how long it's going to take, and here's how much it's going to cost. And uh, in order to get that quote, uh, there's a lot of uh, computational geometry that's going on. So software that's extracting features to go and say like, oh, here's how many layers the board is. Here, oh, here's some exotic feature that's going to have a big impact on the lead yields. And so it's going to be more expensive. Or hey, the, the, um, the underlying process in order to achieve this is going to take a long time. So add lead time uh, or things along those lines. And so that, that, that's a big part of, uh, of our software stack as well. And then a customer likes the, the price and delivery they see. Uh, and so for us, most of uh, uh, the lion's share of the designs that we do uh, from the time that customer says uh, go to the time that they have the assembled board in, in hand is three days uh, contrasted against a couple weeks, which is pretty typical uh, in this industry. Um, but uh, in terms of kicking off the manufacturing process, you can imagine uh, uh, automatic ordering of raw materials for the process uh, and receiving them as well, uh, running through the robotic factory, and then uh, just being sent right off uh, to the customers uh, uh, by either courier or places like uh, UPS or FedEx. And so uh, I think uh, for me, in addition to being in a place where we get to work with these companies, working on just amazing range of different things yeah. and, uh, and a new thing each day, I think one of my favorite things about what we do is to play even a, 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 a small part in trying to build this great process. Uh, and yeah. uh, I, I think that as the orchestration, I think there's almost a, an aesthetic element to like a well-running process that I, that I quite enjoy. Yes, I can totally respect that. And you and I were talking about the analogy between tempo, what tempo automation does and a company I interviewed a while ago, Transcriptic, yep. which is what they do is there's in, in a wet lab, like a biology wet lab, there's all these processes that are typically done by a manual, manually by a lab technician. For example, a PCR 
where you've got all these different steps that, that are easy to define. You can define them uh, in a way that would, seems like a high-level la- pro- programming language, basically, and yet we have people doing them. So a company like Transcriptic is they have a, a robotic arm that basically takes uh, uh, DNA samples and puts it through a PCR machine and then maybe does you know puts it through some other machine and uh, does all these different things. And it's this like daisy chaining process of you know connecting one uh, big big machine to another big machine, and, and each big machine is made by some very specific company that's been around for thirty years doing this one specific thing. Um, and it's it's this interesting process where you're sort of I mean this is how software works. You're always papering over the past with a new fresher looking API and the customer just sees from the outside looking and like, wow, this is revolutionary technology. But under the covers, like I think about the banking system, for example, like people are still doing FTP and they're, they're using old protocols. And, um, that's why, you know, so there are a lot of systems that have been papered over with, um, with new technologies, new APIs. And you were, you know, telling me about these machines that, um, you know, you, you, you're, the the process of tempo is to send these uh, you know PCBs through these different machines and it reminded me of the tr- the transcriptic thing, so it seems like the direction this asymptotes towards is like maybe one big machine that does all of this or maybe you just have uh, machines that are a little more standardized and fit together a little bit better because my sense is that if you're a company like transcriptic or a company like tempo. You're dealing with machines that weren't necessarily built to interface with one another. They were built for some specific thing and then later on repurposed to be part of a modular design. And so I guess my question is like, um, what are the frictions? First of all, like, what are the frictions to connecting these big machines? Because it doesn't work like in software where you just import a library or right, right, right. like make an API, make a, a JSON request to yeah, yeah, some yeah. API and get back a response. It's literally connecting these two ton machines to one another um so give me a description for where where what the state is of integration between these giant machines today and where you'd like to see it go yeah so a couple comments i think uh, and, and i think one thing that uh, really comes to my mind is sort of a point about uh, modular design being good design uh and uh, being a situation where each of the different machines uh, does its function very well and is in a situation where ideally uh, it's uh, it's one where you can interact with uh, in a uh, whether restful or just sort of uh, at least a sort of API like way uh, and. Um, so it, we've had varying success with different our vendors, but some of the folks uh, have been uh, really, uh, really convinced and excited about our vision, and have uh, have consequently been uh, really open to sort of doing what they can to support um, the uh, a lot of the really low-level underlying software uh, that exists uh, in, in our machines. And so I think that uh, it's really credit to them, and I think that. Um, it can be very easy for them to sort of be in a mindset of like, oh, this is sort of like how it's always been done yeah. and, uh, and things along those lines. And um, and I'm really appreciative uh, of the extent to which some of our vendors have um, have been willing to have those uh, those conversations with us. Uh, I think that being said, I think with great intentions, I think it, it is still a case that um, it's um, 
even if they have the intention and the desire to do it, um, it's not uh, an overnight type of situation. I mean, it's not, and so it's not like sort of Stripe or one of these uh, type of APIs <laughs> where you just sort of like uh, add a couple lines and you're after the races. Uh, oftentimes you're uh, sort of digging into these uh, access databases and, uh, and just sort of um, a lot of uh, sort of kludging around in order to go and get it uh, in a way that you're uh, communicating into it in, um, in the way that you want. Uh, and so... Uh, so I think that it's definitely an area where there's uh, work to do uh, to make the the equipment uh, easily accessible uh, to software as we we desire for it to be. Um, but uh, it's it's not insurmountable uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Sure. And I think that if we design uh, our software properly, uh, we will have that nice abstraction uh, like you described, uh, where we're able to go and just sort of uh, converse uh, through software with the, with the machine uh, without having to uh, every time we do sort of. Um, rewrite the software that's going to interact with the low-level uh, systems. And so I guess maybe the, the last thing to say is really around, um, I think, uh, sort of a dynamic between sort of custom and uh, off-the-shelf uh, equipment. Uh, and I think that there's sort of a degree to which uh, there's a tremendous amount of work to be done. And uh, and so consequently, with finite engineering resources, uh, it makes sense to sort of focus on um, sort of non-custom uh, hardware and, and using off-the-shelf stuff, uh, even if it, take, if it takes some work to go and get there. Um, but I think when you think sort of into the far future, um, in the same way that like AWS, for example, has gotten into the business of uh, designing some of their own servers, same, same with Google, it's not hard to imagine that at a certain scale, uh, that's something that we'll, we'll be considering, certainly. Speaking of limiting reagents of, uh, you were talking about engineering resources, are there any, when you're talking about the broad hardware manufacturing world like i think about all the different components that go into a smartphone are there any limiting reagents that from a resource perspective fundamental resource perspective i don't know if there's elements or is there are there any natural resources that we're running out of that we're like are gonna be a bottleneck to making devices yeah, it's a great question and uh, one that, uh, candidly, I haven't thought uh, a huge amount about. Uh, I, I guess I, I've um, read a couple articles about sort of the rare earth magnets and uh, sort of those type of ones as being um, tricky and sort of getting uh, getting harder to find. Um, but um, I, I don't have a sort of deep understanding of uh, in terms of the elements and uh, and whether those are, we're going to be running out of a particular one of those. Yeah, you would think you would see it in the market prices of yep. these kinds of things before yep. it became a problem. So how how long do you think it is until a software engineer can just submit um, like a full CAD design and get a piece of hardware in two days, like Amazon Prime level of speed? Or I guess it just tell me, you could also just tell me the speed that it takes you these days. How long does it take? Yeah. And so uh, our, our commitment to our customers is uh, three days. Uh, wow. And, uh, but that being said, uh, there, there have definitely been occasions where... Three uh, days from the finished quote, from the negotiated quote, to arriving at your doorstep. That's right. That's right. And uh, so uh, that being said, uh, there, there have been some cases where we've delivered in two. Uh, and so uh, when, in virtue of the fact that uh, speed is something that we're very optimized around, and trying to help help folks really build uh, build their designs as quickly as possible and prototype as quickly as possible. Um, that's an area that we continue to invest heavily in, and um, and our vendors uh, on the bare board side have been uh, very gracious uh, to us in terms of um, um, working together to go and try to uh, play a role in that because they're definitely a big part of that as well. Um, but uh, absolutely, the lens through which we look at our process is um, trying to understand how long each step of it takes and uh, come up with ideas, whether through software, through robots, uh, through um, through just process uh, for us to go and drive that time down. 
This is a software engineering podcast. We have only talked about software in the abstract so far. Give me a picture for how the software engineering organization works, what kinds of software projects you're focused on right now, and just generally how you think about software in uh, such a hardware-heavy um, company. Yeah, certainly. Um, so so when we think uh, abstractly uh, in terms of what, uh, what we're about a com- as a company, I think of two uh, two big pillars of that. So one big one is around speed, uh, and the other one is around uh, seamlessness. And uh, sort of a lot of the other activities that we think about in terms of uh, high quality, on-time delivery, uh, things along those lines, uh, resolve into those. So like if, you, um, if you're in a situation where... Uh, it, you want something fast, but there's a quality issue, then you've, you've sort of lost time uh, and debugging and then, then fixing it. Um, so I guess in virtue of those uh, those two being central issues, then um, there's a, a real sense in which all of our software initiatives flow uh, from those principles. Um, so being able to look at, um, so you take quoting, for example, as a process that is in industry certainly um, uh, jeopardizes speed. Uh, there's companies for whom um, and just even getting a quote back uh, can take days, uh, if not even a week, uh, just to know how long it's going to take uh, and uh, how much it's going to cost, uh, which is, in my mind, completely antithetical uh, to the notion of being able to like quickly uh, try out your di- ideas and uh, prototype the same way software engineers can. Um, and so we've invested very heavily in uh, quoting tools to go and make it make so that make it so that the the software is able to automatically do that instantaneously without having to have this big big back and forth or sit in this queue of uh, of uh, designs waiting to be quoted. Um, we have other instances of uh, of software that's really focused on uh, on speed. Um, you could think about. Um, in, in many ways, the, the design for sourcing, the design for manufacturing software in, more generally is around that uh, in virtue of the fact that uh, if you can't find the component, um, it's going to take longer because uh, you're going to have to wait for it to get back in stock. Uh, do uh, just uh, You're going to get paused on what, what you're trying to do there. And so in, in many ways, the design for manufacturing feedback uh, that, that we give to our customers is really around how do we go and uh, make it so that they're thinking about the right thing so they can get their board as quickly as possible. Uh, another big notion that we care quite a lot about is that notion of seamlessness. Uh, and so you were talking about Bezos before. One of my favorite lines of his is a comment around um, uh, every time that somebody calls or emails, it's a failure of their, their website. Communication is a failure. Uh, so to be clear, uh, communication is a success. Uh, it, it's communication in the context of software is, uh, is the context that is more desirable uh, when possible. I think any time that you're in a situation where you have to wait for somebody to pick up the phone. You have to wait for somebody to answer your email. That's time uh, that you're not spending really focusing your design, sort of taken out of your element. It sort of feels like there's a degree to which um, uh, asynchronicity is sort of introduced uh, to the process where you really just want to be focused yeah. and, and driving it yourself. And so, I, so admittedly, I think we um, we staff and uh, and we we run things so that we're picking up the phone uh, very quickly. We're uh, we're getting your email back to emails really really fast. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, um, many folks, myself included, and I think. Uh, Many engineers, in particular, are sort of very interested in um, being able to sort of interact with software tools, uh, and less than wanting to sort of pick up the phone and, and, and talk to talk to somebody about something. There's the Bezos story where there were customer service problems, and to prove the point, he begins a meeting. He sits down in the meeting, calls Amazon customer service on the conference call. And literally just sits there in silence while he waits for a customer. He's on hold for like 
10 minutes or five minutes and it's just like everybody's sitting in silence and as soon as the customer service person like finally says hello welcome to amazon and you know bezos is just furious he's just like i was just testing the system like hangs up instantly and you know begins a meeting about how to speed up the customer service but the other thing i mean he also says communication internally is a failure like he will say at, you know, within Amazon, if you're if you have to do a lot of communication between teams, a lot of verbal communication, that's a failure. You are not exposing the different components of your team well. Um, when I look out at the factory floor, you've got everybody working fairly close to one another, um, which seems great for early on. It's like reminds me of like you start off with a monolithic software project and eventually you break it out into microservices or smaller teams or whatever. Are you start? Or do you do you already have teams organized, or are you still kind of in the phase where everybody just kind of works in a conglomeration? And and have you started to think about the silos that you're going to break people up? Well, I shouldn't say that. Or just the teams that you're going to break people up into? Yeah, for sure. It's a great great line of questioning. And so right now, um, our, our sort of software engineering team is. Um, uh, it's monolithic insofar as everybody's sort of working together. And so there's yeah. one manager uh, and that type of situation. Um, and I assume two pizzas can all can feed the entire team you still. Got it, yeah. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. Um, um, but uh, I think, uh, as I was alluding to before, there's a tremendous amount of software for us to still write. And, uh, I think it's been exciting to, to bring a, a great degree of uh, automation and, uh, and software uh, to, to this process. But there's so much more work uh, yet to do. Um, and so there's... Uh, Work to do around uh, how to how to sort of coordinate the activity of the robots on the on the factory floor. There's software to do with uh, uh, making sure the supply chain is humming along and that we're um, getting the right components from our or our, our vendors consistently. There's software to do with. Um, uh, quoting uh, additional uh, designs from our customers and extracting further features uh, from um, uh, from the designs. There's there's software to do with uh, um, further uh, understanding and uh, and coaching customers on potential pitfalls uh, that can arise with their designs. I think uh, there's just uh, quite a lot of work to do, and I think uh, very naturally um, uh, as uh, as our efforts uh, continue, uh, there'll just be uh, additional teams that, uh, that, that that spawn and sort of focus on those different topics. Move to some farther flung industry wide sort of questions. Um, this is not a, um, a consumer electronics show, but um, I like to get the engineer's perspective of consumer, well, certain trends. What, what did you think of CES this year? What did you think of the result? Because, like, what I've heard is just like Amazon, Alexa, in everything, and voice is going to be really big. And I can imagine that would have some significant impact on the long run of what various hardware devices are going to need um i mean did you did you look into ces results yeah yeah i was able to, to head out to ces and uh, okay you I went think, yeah yeah uh i think did one you of, see this amazon phenomenon i did do wow. yeah yeah no i think that was certainly a, a a dimension of it there i think that um just to just to zoom out a little bit i think it's um if if you haven't been, it's really kind of an awe-inspiring show in virtue of just the the scope and the scale of it. It's um, thousands and thousands of uh, exhibitors, uh, hundreds of thousands of folks there, uh, just millions of square feet of of space. It, it's um, really um, a, just a reminder of how much electronics are going on out there uh, in in this world. 
and uh, and the diversity is is pretty remarkable as well. Anything from um, sort of drones to like uh, connected uh, horse saddles to and just uh, to sort of new interfaces and uh, and displays. To, it just uh, the it's amazing range uh, of activities that, that that folks are working on, and um, and so it, like every every this is the first time that I've been, but uh, boy, it really sort of made me very bullish about uh, just a ton of electronics uh, um, being in the world and uh, and more and more. And I'm sure uh, those connected horse saddles were produced at a much higher cost than tempo automation will produce for them in the long run yeah i think it's quite possible <laughs> for sure um the i um but yeah so i think in terms of uh, general themes from the show uh certainly the voice folks uh um were were, were, were a focal point um but uh, yeah I, I think that was probably the biggest uh, sort of general thing that a lot of folks were paying attention to one of the one of the things that's been happening further and further in the last couple of years has been um, uh, the automotive companies have really been showing up in a way that uh, historically they have not been, uh, and so I think uh, there are a couple of motives for that. I think uh, one is to do with the sort of excitement around uh, autonomous and electric uh, cars uh, coming up, and uh, it's been really exciting to see some uh, early movers uh, in that area. And uh, for us, it's been really exciting to to support some of the folks uh, involved with uh, with that industry. Um, I, I just think that life is going to be so much better uh, when, when cars drive themselves and uh, a lot of less people are going to die uh, from accidents uh, and uh, enormous amounts of free time uh, are going to be uh, freed up uh, for folks that are otherwise spent commuting. And further, uh, the cost of goods uh, is going to uh, reduce dramatically. And so I think to continue with a the theme uh, that, that we uh, spoke about before in terms of automation and Amazon, uh, I think that probably as big uh, an impact on sort of consumer driving uh, for autonomous uh, vehicles is going to be uh, for trucking. Uh, and there's an enormous number of goods uh, that are transferred, transported each year. Um, and uh, there's costs associated with the, you have to amortize the uh, drivers. Oftentimes it's a team of drivers so that somebody can stay awake. Um, uh, just sort of the, the density and the costs associated with uh, what you're able to, um, to how many trucks are able to be on the road and things like that. Um, a, a lot of things are going to change uh, over the next uh, next decade or so on that. And so um, that's something I'm very excited about. And it's interesting to see the efforts of, uh, of some of the some of the incumbent companies uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, and just sort of see what's going to happen there. That race is so interesting because it's one of these things where you're like, okay, this is going to take 10 or 15 years. And these companies are like putting their down really big bets on this 10 or 15 year time horizon of how do we get to autonomy? What is our role in autonomy going to be? Yep. It is fascinating to see these uh, giant investments. Speaking of that, do you know anything about the Tesla Gigafactory? Like the procedures that they use? Because that to me seems like the the nexus of manufacturing, like American manufacturing at this, the most futuristic nexus of American yeah, manufacturing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, so I think, um, so a quick comment to say, I think one of the things that's really striking to me about it is that uh, I think it's a very good insight that it's uh, battery technologies are really the constraint uh, for a lot of the stuff uh, that uh, that people are very excited about uh, to, to have happen. I mean, I think that um, when you just compare the energy density of um of uh, gas uh, to batteries, it's just no contest. I mean, it's like I think it's order of magnitude or so in terms of um, joules per uh, um, uh, per cubic uh, centimeter, like whatever uh, unit of measure you choose. Um, and so I think there's a first and sort of a, just a general point to say that um, uh, battery technology is going to be, and not to mention I guess the economics of it, uh, and for which I think probably more than the chemistry and the energy density, the, the gigafactory will have an impact on. Um, 
but I think uh, as uh, as sort of a proposition and as as something to do, it's really um, seems like a very impressive uh, uh, effort and piece of technology. So it reminds me to some degree of. Um, I don't know if uh, uh, the listeners have uh, have watched videos of semiconductor uh, fabs, but I think of those as really one of the one of the more impressive uh, contexts of uh, automation uh, taking place. And so I think uh, auto is very impressive and almost um, sort of stereotypical when you think about like, oh, think about manufacturing, you think about um, sort of robots at a car factory. Um, but um, a semiconductor is uh, extremely impressive in the the precision, the scale, and uh, and just the scope uh, of uh, of activity. I mean, it's easy to spend a billion dollars. Uh, bringing up one of these uh, robotic uh, semiconductor fabs, and I think a lot of the principles, and I have to imagine a lot of the, um, a lot of the people with uh, with knowledge around this type of thing, were very much involved with getting the the Gigafactory uh, spun up. When you said the proportion of, uh, so when you're comparing the density, energy density of gas to batteries, do you know what the proportion? Is? I'd have to look at uh, the. Um, I, so I forget. So embarrassingly, I forget the unit of measure, but I think it was somewhere like. Forty something uh, for gas, and then so like five or so for uh, for batteries, and so like something like that. Uh, I don't remember the particular numbers, just uh, being struck by uh, the, the contrast. Sure. And so there's a, a long way to, way to go before we're beating squish dinosaurs as uh, as a way to right. <laughs> store energy. Well, well, we'll get there. Uh, I know you spend a lot of time touring factories. I guess that's like a hobby of yours, or it's yeah, just okay? I, I just. Uh, I think manufacturing and factories, uh, more general, are extremely interesting and entertaining. Uh, so, I think there's the there's ways to consume it uh, from um, from your chair at home. Uh, you think about uh, shows like How It's Made, uh, which uh, oh by the way, are, I love that are largely on YouTube uh, and wonderful. Yes. Um, and uh, but I think uh, there's nothing like uh, actually sort of going in the flesh uh, to go and see a given factory. And so a, a group that um, myself and a couple of other folks have uh, started and been involved with is um, a Bay Area factory tours group. And I think there's a similar one in, uh, in New England. And it's been just really a, a very exciting way to go and figure out uh, and really understand uh, how these factories work. And I think um, there's a couple of things that I really enjoy about being able to visit uh, the factories. And so I think one, uh, one point is to do with uh, really having a good uh, appreciation of all the ingenuity uh, that goes into it. And so even watching on how it may, it's like, oh, how do they take the stems off those things? And it's just like, oh, that's a what a what a miraculous piece of uh, innovation to be able to go and uh, and pull that off. And and so I think that um, I think the same way that like looking at a, a very clever uh, approach to sort of solving a problem with software, it's like, oh, I never would have thought uh, that you were able to sort of use that library, sort of uh, do this algorithm in order to solve that problem. I think that um, in the physical world, uh, I think the the analog is a lot of these factories. You just like there's just so much. Um, uh, thoughtfulness and consideration in, uh, in designing these process processes. And I think that um, I was talking before about how much I, I really enjoy um, just sort of being involved in sort of developing a, a well-orchestrated process. And I think to be able to observe um, at some of these factories a similar type of thing as um, sort of an aesthetic thing. Some people like, uh, oh, it's a beautiful math equation or that's a beautiful um, uh, symphony or whatever. For me, it's like, oh, that's a beautiful process and uh, a really sort of well-run and well-orchestrated uh, system. Um, uh, so uh, I guess maybe the the last thing to say uh, on that point is for folks in the business of uh, of designing hardware, uh, one of the things that can be uh, very entertaining 
uh, and, and I guess maybe more importantly, valuable is to talk to the factory and to sort of understand uh, their experience and sort of their considerations on, on design. And so I think for industries that I think have uh, spent less time in terms of having sort of these automated uh, software tools like uh, like we have on the electronic side, there is a, sort of a decent amount of know-how that exists with uh, with the folks at the factory. And it's uh, to sort of walk in with your design. And then I, many of these folks will be very generous and actually sort of excited about uh, sharing some of their experience with you just in virtue of uh, them being very used to having customers who have just complete uh, cluelessness about manufacturing. Companies like, hey, can you all make this? And then they're just like, their head explodes because like that's completely unmanufacturable. Um, and so making sure that it's sort of a dialogue with the, with the factory, I think, is an important notion. Um, but uh, I guess maybe to, to close on this point, one of the things that we've been happy to do and uh, are continuing to do is to uh, offer tours of our factory. So if, uh, if folks are in the San Francisco area, uh, we'd love to sort of hear from them and, uh, and happy to have them by. That's in the Dogpatch District for people who are not. Sure. Um, so, w- are, is there any crazy stuff you've seen inside factories recently that um, I don't know? Maybe comes to mind, springs to mind, or maybe uh, I don't know. Anything specific? Yeah. So, I think one one of the one of the technologies that has been, uh, and I, I think, sort of exciting and fun to see has been um, uh, efforts around uh, some of the the collaborative robots. And so, I think that there's sort of a, a notion historically uh, when people think about uh, robots involved with manufacturing. Uh, folks think about them as uh, having a tremendous amount of time uh, required to go and get set up. Uh, also be a situation where they're extremely dangerous. Uh, these are big arms with a lot of sort of, quote, strength uh, in, in virtue of having extremely powerful motors that uh, they can literally kill people uh, yeah. if you're, um, you're, you're too uh, proximate to them. Uh, and so I think uh, more recently it's been exciting to see a, a sort of a genre of robots around um, ones that you sort of train by uh, almost showing. So like, hey, pick something up here, put it there. Um, and uh, and then the robots, uh, uh, in virtue of having additional layers of feedback, uh, if they detect uh, that type of collision with person, uh, they're, they're able to back off and not uh, not sort of uh, try to push uh, push through. So I think that the, maybe even the more general theme is uh, it's been exciting to see more and more feedback uh, be involved with robots. And so it's not the newest trend, but I think to see more computer vision and sort of more sort of sensors and things along those lines um, involved with these robotic systems and um, involved in such a way that uh, they're able to handle a very flexible situation instead of being um, uh, being required to have a, a very constrained uh, situation and do uh, the exact same task uh, without any variation. So I think just the, the rise of flexibility that comes through feedback to robots has been certainly a very exciting trend for me to observe. Google was, I think, recently trying to sell off Boston Dynamics, which is that robotics company that they bought a while ago. Did, did that surprise you when they decided they were like, we're going to try to sell this? Uh, so I, it, so if I understand the, the context uh, properly, um, I think uh, recently at Google, there's been more of a focus on uh, on, uh, in terms of their sort of quote other bets or sort of moonshot right, type yes. of things, um, the, indeed. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I think um, some of their the leadership and their finance organization have been um, very aggressive uh, with these companies in terms of um, making sure that they have things happen in uh, in certain time scales. Um, and so I'm a huge fan of Boston Dynamics. I mean, I think it just uh, oh, yeah. the the robots that they made I think are absolutely miraculous. And I think when sort of having done some robotics project myself, I'm just uh, really in awe at sort of like, they're really hard to be able to go and get uh, the robots that they've uh, they've done uh, working in the way that they are. And um, and so I, I think I'm I'm optimistic about them being able to find uh, some really good applications that uh, they're going to be sort of great, uh, not only as a way to 
sort of make uh, make a given process or uh, or a situation better for folks, um, but also uh, sort of build a, a great company around it. So I'm 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 very bullish on uh, on Boston Dynamics, and I understand um, uh, Google's sentiments around uh, sort of wanting to sort of try to um, sort of figure out how their financials uh, are going to look the best. Um, but uh, I, I think it'd be, it'd be sort of a shame if um, if Boston Dynamics were a casualty of that process. As we're winding down the interview, I noticed you studied philosophy. I studied philosophy for a while. So I have some even further flung questions to ask you. Do you sense a growing divide between people who understand technology and benefit from it and those who do not and perhaps uh, do not benefit from technology? They maybe have an allergy to technology. Uh Maybe maybe this is uh, me being uh, a little blind to it, but I I guess I I uh, I feel like um, well, there's certain certainly folks that are, have been uh, reluctant to to sort of uh, go and engage with uh, with new technologies. I think in the context of manufacturing more generally, um, I, I think that there's to be a degree of openness uh, to to go and um, explore and engage uh, new processes and, and approaches. I think of um, our customers, it's been um, really exciting for them, for me to see them, um, really sort of be amenable and excited. It's like, oh boy, like I don't, I don't have to wait all this time for this. I don't have to uh, spend uh, all this time to do And it's a learning curve without a doubt. Um, there's, um, sort of process to sort of understand our quoting tools and the uh, design for manufacturing. I, I think it is being well-designed, but still it's a very different, uh, different process. And so maybe I think there's an extent to which, uh, in virtue of, uh, folks being in the engineering discipline, um, there's, uh, perhaps maybe a little bit more of an appetite to sort of engage and, and explore, uh, these new type of activities. Um, but, um, I, I think, uh, in, at, at least in, in terms of some of the industries and some of the folks that I've involved with, um, I've actually been sort of hardened by the degree to which, uh, po- folks have been open, open to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess I can't, um, I, I think, uh, the, the very clear caveat around that is that, um, I think to sort of say that I have sort of deep exposure to sort of the, the everyday experience oh, of, yeah. of everybody would be um, we're coastal false, elites indeed, uh, and so uh, so I, I guess I, I'd, I'd be a little bit wary about sort of casting sort of general statements uh, about um, sort of folks' disposition to technology that I, I sort of frankly don't don't really think I have a deep understanding of. And this is why we're headed to District Nine. <laughs> I think we are, because really you, I think we are really insulated from how the vast populace of America thinks about this stuff. I asked um, a friend of mine who's a pretty deep thinker on the podcast the same question uh, earlier this week, and uh, he said that, you know, even, or he implied, you know, even in places like these rural rural American communities, because, I mean, I think everybody in America right now is trying to figure out what the heck is America, What are, where are we, where are the dividing lines between us, where do we have shared sense of culture? I guess Everybody in America loves their smartphone. Maybe that's something we can all get behind from a technological point of view. The vast majority of us love Facebook, or at least we're addicted to it enough to have a reliance on it. So I guess maybe one uh, one other comment for me to say is that I think one of the things that I find very fun about uh, the business that we're in is that um, there's actually a pretty dramatic geographic distribution uh, of our customers. And so it's huh. it's not exclusively um, sort of Bay Area startups or things like that. Um, we have a number of, of our customers from um, um, sort of Midwestern parts of the country, uh, South, uh, things along those lines. And what do they so- get built? What kind of what kind of stuff are they looking? Oh, for? it's a huge range of uh, it's sort of many of the similar things that you'd find here. So anything from like uh, industrial controls and um, uh, sort of a lot of automotive stuff. There's a, there's a huge range of activity. I think one of the things that 
um, maybe uh, less folks uh, appreciate than might is that uh, is um, there's a tremendous amount of uh, new product development and, and uh, innovation, uh, maybe pr- perhaps particularly in hardware uh, that's happening really around the, the country. And it's it's not an exclusively, uh, oh, it's all happening in the Bay Area or, or that type of situation. And so I think when, when I talk about um, sort of engineers, uh, electrical engineers having an openness uh, to sort of uh, try new approaches of designing their, uh, their boards, I, I think that... Um, I think in virtue of folks having sort of an engineering mindset and always um, sort of excited about sort of trying a better better way and uh, and seeing if there's a, there's a, a way to improve the way they do their job, I think that 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 has been sort of more um, more the operative theme uh, than one of uh, being sort of like anti-technology in virtue of a particular geography, so not, or, or pro-technology conversely. So I guess that's uh, that's that from from what I've been seeing that that's sort of uh, the observation that I have. So to close off. Um since you studied philosophy, there is this growing branch of philosophy. This is the kind of the, uh, an area that excites me a lot, uh, where you have very deep thinkers. You have people like uh, Sam Harris and um, Yuval Harari and Nick Bostrom that are thinking deeply about this AI question, and they're also thinking about. Uh, so they're thinking about you know, three broad topics that come to mind are: there's the AI risk question. There is the um, human superpower question that uh, Yuval seems to be very concerned about these days. About like, are we, are we, you know, as we merge with, as we merge biology and technology, do we become superhuman? Are we already godlike? What kinds of questions does that raise? And then there's also the simulation question that this gets to: Are we living in a simulation? Are we building technologies that get us towards a simulation? So I see these things as like this interesting new cross-section of philosophy and technology where in order to have a, a, a well-formed opinion on these types of topics, you have to be pretty well-versed in both philosophy and technology. So I know those are like some big questions or some big topics, but um, if you have any thoughts that are well-formed um, that you're willing to discuss that I may not hear anywhere else, I would love to hear your opinions. Um, and so I guess... I'm not sure if I have uh, like extremely sort of deep and considered uh, opinions on those topics, sort of most generally. Sure. Um, I guess I can speak more uh, for um, I think in, in our industry, uh, particular in terms of the the impact of um, things like uh, machine learning, artificial intelligence, and um, so I think that uh, one of the contexts that uh, that we see is um, I think one of the companies that we see as a, an analog is a company called uh, Protolabs and. Um, they're, uh, they take a very software-centric approach to making mechanical parts, so um, enclosures, cases, things like that, with processes like machining and injection molding. And uh, so it's interesting to see the degree to which um, uh, their process is very much one that gets smarter uh, with every order. And, uh, and their software is in a situation where it's like, oh, well, because uh, sort of... Uh, Benny's uh, medical device company had uh, had this problem five years ago um, because the, their design had features X, Y, and Z. Um, I see your design also has features X, Y, and Z. You might have a similar problem. It becomes very difficult uh, for an, indivi- an, an individual uh, to be able to go and uh, have that recollection. I mean, it's possible, um, but uh, just the the experiential base of seeing hundreds, maybe a thousand uh, designs over the course of uh, the career of a machinist um, is just something different in kind uh, from the software seeing millions uh, of, of different parts uh, go through the process. And if it's uh, written and designed in a proper way, uh, the extent to which it can sort of, quote, learn uh, from that is uh, is really tremendous. And so we're, we're very excited about uh, seeing something analogous 
uh, going on uh, on the electronic side as uh, as our software continues to mature and as 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 our software has a wider sort of quote experiential base uh, of experience. Um, the extent to which uh, the, our software will, uh, uh, understands. Uh, the electronics manufacturing process better than any single person in the world. Um, and it's sort of an uh, interesting dynamic that just doesn't really feel like it could have existed um, a, a couple of decades ago. Um, and so I guess maybe that's less of um, sort of some deep comments around uh, those, uh, those are very challenging and, um, and difficult questions, but more around um, sort of one of the ways in which we see um, uh, certainly artificial intelligence and machine learning having um, sort of quite a material impact on the, on the manufacturing industry. Well, uh, Jeff McAlvey, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been great talking to you. Very wide-ranging, interesting conversation. Huge thanks for having me, Jeff. Thanks so much.